When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Burning Daylight, the only podcast for the working cowboy. All right, welcome back, Daylight Burner. Sorry for the delay there. I swear to God, I'm falling apart here uh, today. I've recorded this episode already with no sound, so now we got a good seven minutes of blank screen silence, but I'm here now, so don't you worry. Um, hope your weekend turned out good. This is Monday, November 13th. This is the Friggin' Farm and Ranch Report. I'm going to have to redo uh, all my AI-generated cover art here uh, to, you know, to add and ranch into my into my title, but it just felt too farmerish to just call it the friggin' farm report. So as y'all know, I'm not a farmer, never will be. Uh, never have been. I've, I've done some farming, but I'm not a farmer. <clears throat> and, uh, so anyhow, we, uh, it was a good week for me. It's been warm. Um, cool, cooling off though. I mean, like it, it's getting pretty chilly at night, freezing pretty hard. Nice, nice uh, enough out during the day, though. I mean, it's mid sixties, pretty, pretty nice day, and um, getting ready for what sounds like shaping up to be a wet winter, um, at least here in this part of the world. But uh, we'll go ahead, we'll get going here with uh, yeah, the freaking farm and ranch report for the week of. November 13th, 2023. Start off with the market report. This is as of Thursday afternoon, so it's a little, little outdated. I haven't checked the the, the market today, but um, CME Livestock Exchange, uh, live cattle are trading lower, uh, five, 505 lower at 174.35. Feeder cattle uh, down 785 at 224. 925. Hogs up 35 cents at 72.50. Corn's down, soybeans are down, wheat's down, cotton's up. Um, 
winter storm in Alaska. Cash trades at a standstill. So thus far for Thursday in all regions, negotiated cash trading has been slow on light to moderate demand. In the Texas panhandle compared to last week, live FOB purchases traded mostly for uh, $4 lower at 181 with a light test noted. In Kansas, um, compared to last week, live FOB purchases traded mostly $5 lower at 180 with light test noted. In Nebraska, a few live purchases traded at 181.50. However, not enough for market trend. Last week, live FOB purchases traded at 185. Dress delivered purchases compared to last week traded mostly $5 lower at 287. The Western Corn Belt, a few live FOB and purchase deliveries traded at 181 and from 283 to 287. However, not enough for a market trend. Last week, live FOB purchases traded at 185 and dress delivered purchases traded at 292. Uh, the cattle on feed numbers uh, as of October 1st, second highest inventory on record. Uh, cattle and calves on feed for the slaughter market in the United States for feedlots with a capacity of a thousand head or more total 11.6 million head on October 1st, 2023. The inventory was 1% above October 1st, 2022. This is the second October 1st, second highest October one inventory since the series began in 96. The inventory included 6.95 million steers and steer calves up slightly from the previous year. This group accounted for 60% of the total inventory. Heifers and heifer calves amounted, accounted for uh, 4.64 million, up 1% from 2022. Uh, placements in the feedlots during September totaled 2.21 million head, 6% above 2022. Net placements were 2.15 million head. During September, placements of cattle and calves weighing less than 600 pounds were 460,000 head. Uh, Six weights, 355,000. Seven weights, 485,000. Eight weights were 521,000. Uh, nine weights, 290,000. And uh, 1,000 and above were 95,000 head. Marketing of fed cattle during September totaled 1.66 million head, 11% below 2022. So we got a high inventory and... Uh, Pretty pretty steep drop off compared to last year on the on the number marketed. <clears throat> National Drought Monitor showed major improvement in the Midwest and Plains, but the southeastern drought has worsened. So almost every state in the Plains and Midwest saw major improvements, but every state in the southeast saw drought develop and or worsen. As of October thirty first, twenty twenty three. 30.68% of the U.S. and Puerto, R Puerto Rico and 36.53% of, of the lower 48 states are in drought, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. Uh, beef exports uh, sales were down 2%. Um, uh, or 17.1,000 or so. So 17,100 metric tons. Um, and beef production slightly down. And <clears throat> so this is all from National Beef Wire, uh, which is, I don't know, that's, I don't know exactly how all the, the companies fit together, but Corbett Wall and the 
the feeder flash are highly involved with that. Um, moving along in from that into this article here from Market Insider, beef prices hit record high as southwestern U.S. recovers from the worst dry spell in 1,200 years, it says. Uh, beef prices have spiked to a record high recently as a mega drought that slammed U.S. a few years ago shrank cattle supplies. Retail prices hit $8 a pound, topping the previous record of $7.90 during the pandemic, according to Financial Times analysis of data from the Ag Department. <clears throat> That's after the southwestern U.S. saw the lowest rainfall is seen in 1,200, during, 1200 years during the 2020 to 2021 season according to a study published last year. While the historic dry spell has uh, since eased somewhat, inventories of hay are still low and feed costs remain too high for some cattle, mar- uh, cattle farmers to uh, afford. The result, a whittled down national herd size that fell to a 61-year low. Intensifying the high feed costs has been the Russia-Ukraine war that's pushed prices of soy, corn, and wheat all of it, all of which ultimately means farmers can support fewer cattle, and that scarcity spells higher beef prices. Unlike hens and pigs, who give birth to multiple eggs and piglets a year, heifers give birth to one calf every twelve months. It's a nice little tidbit that that Market Insider gave gave for the, the steady folks. Uh, the impact of the drought, the higher feed costs, and the sh- cattle supplies expect to have a longer term effect have longer term effects in the market. A uh, rancher in, in Louisiana told uh, the Financial Times it's better to offload cattle than to feed them. This drought is an environmental event having a significant impact on the national herd. She said, you're seeing cattle being sold off heavily. And my immediate concern is what does our region and the, and the country's cattle industry look like six months from now, 12 months from now, and 12 months from now, what do our markets look like? That's... um. I would say that is a very relevant point to bring up. Um, <clears throat> four and a half million heifers on feed that uh, will not be kicking out a calf next year. So, um, yeah, droughts uh, droughts a messy thing, and it was a bad one here here uh, out west. And and luckily, like it's been a good year. So I know for us. For about a year now, we've seen pretty much nothing but but dairy cattle. The, you know, between the drought and people selling off, or um, a heavy heavy snow and rainfall <clears throat> led to a lot of feed and uh, high feed prices kept a lot of people from from sending us cattle, uh, especially when there was there was feed to be had outside uh growing in the ground you know so it's uh, it's hard to you know can't blame them for it and uh it's uh it's kind of the cyclical nature i mean we we were already at the lowest cow herd in 61 years and then now we still we got another four and a half million heifers on feed that uh you know kind of taken out of the out of production so it's It'll be something to look forward uh, in the 2025 cattle numbers. Well, will these states that are coming out of a drought out here in the West, are they going to be able to restock and uh, and rebuild some of the, the herd size? 
or uh or is it are they these these places in the in the southeast they're going to continue to liquidate um i don't know about you know parts of texas but i'm sure there's there's some there's yeah, droughts uh, an issue just about everywhere and uh it's it's always you know you're always not far from a drought so it's uh we're we're hoping for for some more more moisture this this winter but in the meantime you couple that with the the rising interest rates uh so there was something else there was another little tidbit in uh i think it was in that national beef wire piece uh, it was about the Uh, maybe it was on the stock market. Yes, it was. So on stock update, the Dow was down 223.69. NASDAQ was down 140.44. S&P was down 38.27. <laughs> it says stocks were under pressure after Fed Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Jerome Powell's comments. I don't remember what his comments were, but I'm sure they were something about how to curb inflation, they're going to have to continue to jack up interest rates, which honestly needs to happen. But that's uh, it makes makes everything more expensive to borrow, and ag, the hag economy in particular is hit significantly by by just those those few, you know, like one percent interest rate. Like, well, now you're you're going. We were at zero. Now we're we're at like five percent, and uh, that's a that's a big deal in the long run. So now when you were looking at three percent uh, mortgages, now you're looking at like six seven percent, um, which it's still nowhere near like the eighteen twenty percent you were seeing in the eighties that you know <laughs> that they had to jack interest rates way up to to curb the inflation of the seventies. So you had the stagflation issue, which a lot of people blamed on Carter, which he probably deserves some of it, but when you look at what happened leading up to that, you had from essentially 62 to 75 was the Vietnam war and all that, all the spending that goes on behind that. And like, <laughs> that's one of the things that it's important to note, take note, uh, particularly like on this Ukraine stuff, we've spent, spent hundred and something billion already. And they're wanting more, and that like it's just become a stalemate at that point. At this point, and um, who knows how much we've already sent to Israel? Um, and then we're it looks like we're sure gearing up for conflict with Iran, whether it's full scale war or not. I don't know, but you know, Iraq was expensive enough, and Iran's about four times as big with a real military. Um, I know Iraq had had a had a real military too, but I think Iran's a little better better trained and equipped and whatnot. Um, and it's not flat desert, a lot of mountainous terrain. So like that, but we get involved over there. Do we win? I don't know. Probably, I guess depends on what what winning means. But going to be really goddamn expensive, and it's going to be <clears throat> it's going to be bigger than what we've. Uh, what we've bitten off here in the last 20 years or so was going to be bigger than that. So yeah, you, you can, you can look for this uh, inflation to probably continue. Um, 
we'll see how this this foreign policy stuff goes. But it's having some some crazy effects. Like all all of this, the fertilizer crisis, the the high the high grain prices, the the high beef prices. It all it, it it's just like a perfect storm of bullshit, and uh, and the ag sector gets hit particularly hard. So, um. History doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. You know, I've I've said that many times. Uh, was Mark Twain is who I attribute it to. I don't know who originally said it. If he he's the original attribution or what. But if we look back to like the the twenties, we're coming on, off of World War One, <laughs> huge amounts of spending and debt, uh, and massive unemployment. Uh, they had the the bonus army of uh, of World War One vets who were promised a you know combat bonus, never got paid, and they marched on Washington, camped out, had the had the U.S. Army turned turned on them themselves, including uh, uh, I think Smedley Butler was a general. Um, and then you know then you went into the the Roaring Twenties, but it was you have these these like massive collapses after after the end of a major war like that because you ramp up your your uh your war machine and you you build up this production to fight a war and then once the shooting's done well then there's there's just massive unemployment like the the soldiers all come home and a lot of them are just done and then well now there's no need to make so many bombs unless you find somewhere else to send them and uh <clears throat> the the u.s has been particularly good at finding somewhere else to send them since the end of world war ii and keeping that military industrial base uh chugging right along so um but anyway i guess get a little off track all these all these conflicts overseas have uh have a major impact on on what happens here as well so we'll i've got an article later on that we'll we'll go a little more into to that but <clears throat> it just it's something to think about um moving from from the market side of things to kind of s- some policy uh there's a new federal rule that seeks to curb deceptive practices in in poultry production and this uh, one was this was November ninth, just a couple of days ago. Uh, federal ag officials are posed poised to enact new disclosure requirements for the poultry industry to give chicken growers a better understanding of their potential profits. The changes are meant to address some long-standing complaints by farmers who are contracted by large companies to grow chickens for meat. Uh, USDA officials said Wednesday. Most often, the companies are meat processors that pay farmers to grow their chickens. The companies provide the chicks, feed, and medicines, and the farmers provide the facilities and the labor to raise them until the birds are ready for slaughter. The farmers are often compensated on how efficiently they produce meat compared with uh, other farmers contracted by the companies, and many farmers have complained to the USDA more than a decade that the companies have too much leverage in arrangements and too little accountability, department officials said. That can result in farmers making less than expected profits 
while being saddled with debt for uh, constructing or upgrading their facilities. It's high time that poultry growers get the benefit of robust transparency, upfront and ongoing to clean up the broiler chicken market of deceptive practices. Andy Green, a USDA senior advisor for Fair and Competitive Markets, said. The department announced this week the first in a series of new requirements that are a result of President Joe Biden's executive order in 2021 to increase competition in the country's economy. The new regulations require live poultry dealers to disclose to farmers the earnings of their contracted growers. The dealers must also describe how they handle flock losses associated with disease and natural disasters, shortages of food, and farmer complaints about food quality. The new regulations require dealers to guarantee a minimum number of flock placements within with the farmers per year and specify the sizes of those flocks. Broiler chickens mature in about two months. Dealers that slaughter less than 2,000 or 2 million pounds of live broilers weekly or 104 million pounds annually are exempt. It's fair to say that for many, many years we've heard concern from poultry growers as to whether or not the contracting and tournament systems system that they've engaged in provide a level of fairness and transparency uh, U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack said Wednesday during a news conference. He said new regulations are being imposed under the Packers and Stockyards Act of 1921, the purpose of which is to protect farmers from unfair and monopolistic practices. They are expected to go into effect in late January. Uh, consolidation in the meat packing industry gained renewed focus during the COVID-19 pandemic when large processing facilities were forced to temporarily close and some livestock producers had nowhere to sell their animals. Federal officials have said that a handful of large companies control about 85% of the beef market, 70% of the pork, and more than 50% of the chicken. So there's a really good book uh, that that covers a lot of this, and it's called uh, The Meat Racket. And it's... uh, it's pretty biased, I'd say. It's maybe subtly so, but it's called The Meat Racket, uh, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business. And it's the story of John Tyson and, and the the rise of the, the Tyson meat empire. And and it's really, really is a, like, it's a fascinating book. But they, they go in pretty good detail about how this tournament system works between the poultry growers and and how they they're continually pushing one operator out with like a new a new wave of uh of, of chicken farmers so um it, you had like your traditional white southerners and then they got pushed out for like some out of town people moving into the south and then uh, i believe it was like laotian from laos um immigrants buying these these chicken farms and like <laughs> it was always in the in the new contract you had to you had to upgrade your facility as you went and and to, had to take on these huge massive million dollar loans millions of dollars and then they'd get screwed on on the contract and uh because they weren't able to compete with the newer facilities and it's a, it was a whole mess so it's um it's fascinating read i'd recommend it uh, Christopher Leonard wrote it. It's called The Meat Racket. And um, it's on Audible. That's where I I came about it. So 
anyways, uh, they can, it explains it in there a lot better than I can. So, um, we'll see how that all plays out, but that's a, seems like it's a decent step in the right direction. Um, the, the poultry and the hog industry, they got themselves into the point where like, you don't have really any independent producers anymore. There's a, there's a handful of independent hog producers in the Midwest, but not many it's all pretty consolidated and there are these like massive operations and a lot of times the people that that own the land they they just contract out they don't own the animals they just they feed them for for the packers and uh which under the packers and stockyards act they're not supposed to own the cattle for more than like two weeks you know they're it was like two weeks below before deliveries when or once once they're sold, you had fourteen days to deliver, and uh, and so like that period is the only time that the the packers own the live animal. Well, now they have they own them all the way through conception to to slaughter, and um, like seems like in direct violation of the Packers and Stockyard Act. I'm not a lawyer, um, and I doubt you. My I doubt my lawyer friend would be able to tell you much about this this case maybe I, I don't know if rob what rob's uh how his expertise is on antitrust law I'll, I'll ask him next next time we're on fence post politics but <clears throat> we'll see how that one plays out uh but also on kind of the same same footing tyson's gonna shut down two more processing plants one in columbia south carolina and one in jacksonville florida um, so over the past year, Tyson and other meat companies have struggled with volatile prices and slow consumer demand resulting in significant losses and cost cutting measures to shore up their business. The latest two closures add to the six chicken plants that Tyson has shuttered this year. So they shut down six of them as well as significant layoffs at, at a poultry complex in Wilkesboro, North Carolina last month. Spokesperson said the company will make efforts to support their workers, offering opportunities at other locations and partnering with state and local officials to provide any additional resources. Um, we understand the impact of this decision on our team measures, the spokesperson said, with a focus on optimizing our uh, operational footprint. We are reallocating resources to operate as efficiently as possible while maintaining ample capacity to serve our customers. A mix of challenges have spelled trouble for the U.S. industry this year, including low chicken prices, high input costs, and supply chain pressures that have raised the cost of uh, beef and pork. This has translated the consecutive quarterly losses for JBSSA, uh, Smithfield Parent, the WH Group, and Tyson, which the two quarters in a row they've lost money. That's like that's shocking for those big companies i mean they were they were raking in the profit during during covid and then uh after that that plant fire in holcomb kansas you know like man they they really they made a lot of money but <clears throat> i guess it's it's catching back up and, and inflation the inflation deal catches everything but um <clears throat> it's uh that's a sad deal. So these were 
what they call they're called um it's a case ready facility um case ready value added production facilities um it's about a couple hundred people in both both places so um it, it's going to lead to further consolidation and i would imagine you'll see these these big packing giants start to move more facilities offshore and um I wouldn't be too awful surprised if you start seeing a lot more imported beef. Um, but also, I I was uh, I was telling somebody, and maybe it's because I'm in a little bit of an isolated spot here in Nevada. We're one of the the few, you know, feedlots here in, in this part of the world that are not just like uh, used a couple months out of the year during weaning time. You know, there's. <clears throat> We're one of the few uh, year-round feedlots here in this this part of the world, and we're we're awful we're awful empty. Um, but I don't know. Like I'm just I guess I don't know enough about the other feedlots. But they're you know they're saying that's one of the highest uh, the second highest cattle inventory numbers for for cattle on feed, and I, I just wonder where where all these cattle are coming from. There are a lot of, I, I know the, the crossbred dairy calves have been, you know, they've been jumping up in numbers quite a bit. And I can see that as a continuing trend, particularly for the, the big, the big operators. Cause the way, the way that works with, with in cooperation with the dairy, the dairy wants all their animals, pretty much cookie cutter and they've got that down to a pretty pretty solid science a lot of a lot of inbreeding line breeding if you will um but they've got the the cookie cutter animal pretty well down now if they can they can choose the the beef semen that they want to use they can get their 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 choice of sires from from the top you know beef breed bulls that they want and they can get sex semen, so they you they know they're getting a bull calf, and they know his genetics are supposed to do this, this, and this, and they've got these these crossbred cattle gaining, you know, not on par with, um, <laughs> with a with a native native born steer, you know, Angus steer, but like fairly close, and they grade really well, and um, and they're cookie cutter and just everything's the same there's it, it's um it's like a dream come true for these for these big packers because like you don't have to adjust shit you just one animal after another just almost exactly the same and uh it's it's efficient um and then those those uh bull calves they get sent to a calf ranch and then later on to a feedlot finished out and chances are they never see a blade of grass in their life, but boy, they can, they can fine tune those genetics and pump them out at will. It's uh, I mean, it's, it's a smart move for, for those big, big packers. Um, we'll see where it goes in the future, but uh, I, I'm really interested to see how the, the cattle herd rebounds. <clears throat> Uh, as as the western states come out of this drought 
and hopefully the the southeast gets some relief here before too long um moving along to the next article here this is uh from western ag reporter uh producers seek lawsuits as wild horse population in, uh wild horse populations increase uh wild horses are quote Wild horses, quote, are living symbols of the historic and pioneer spirit of the West, end quote, as determined by Congress under the Wild wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act of 1971. However, if left unchecked, wild horses become a threat to the ecosystems they inhabit. The agency tasked with managing and maintaining the health of the horses and the land is the BLM under the Federal Wild and Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act or the Wild Horse Act. However, Wild horse management has been the source of great scrutiny by producers and landowners alike and is the topic of a recent lawsuit. Colvin and Son LLC and Stone Cabin Ranch LLC claim the BLM has not done their job <coughs> Excuse me, managing wild horses in the 540,000 acres that make up the Stone Cabin complex. They filed a lawsuit against the BLM and the U.S. Department of Interior on October 17th in the U.S. District Court of Nevada. Colvin and Son LLC, a cow-calf operation, was formed in the year 2000 and operates within the administrative boundary of the BLM Stone Cabin allotment and maintains both BLM and Forest Service grazing permits. The court case stated a lot. This livestock operation has been dependent on public land use and national forest system land for a long time and has consistently cooperated with federal land management agencies to achieve applicable rangeland health standards and land use uh, slash forest plan objectives. Uh, Stone Cabin Ranch and uh, the other main plaintiff in the case is one of the oldest continuous family-run cow-calf oper livestock operations in the state of Nevada and also holds BLM and U.S. Forest Service grazing permits for their cattle. In the court case, uh, the complaint for judicial review of agency decision relating to wild horses, it is established that the defendants earlier in the year had determined there was an overpopulation of wild horses in the SCC, and the so it's stone cabin complex, and surrounding management areas, and that action was necessary to remove the excess wild horses within the SCC per a wild horse management plan. Despite this determination, the defendants failed to take action to remove wild horses from the SCC, which the plaintiffs claim is a violation of the Wild and Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act, causing harm to the plaintiffs, to the public lands within the SCC, to wildlife species and their habitats, and to the wild horses themselves. The Wild Horse Act specifically states the Secretary of the BLM shall manage wild, free-roaming horses and burrows in a manner that is designed to achieve and maintain a thriving natural ecological balance on the public lands. The SCC is home to two herd management areas, or HMAs, <clears throat> Stone Cabin HMA and Salisbury HMA, the appropriate management level, or the AML, of the Stone Cabin HMA is 218 to 364 horses. However, according to BLM data, the 2023 estimated population of Stone Cabin was over 435 head, or 120% above the AML. Salisbury HMA noted 388 head, which is 978 or 970% above the AML. Almost 10 times higher. Like, they're supposed to have about 
35 head or so, it seems like. Um, the complaint notes that this exceedance existed even after an emergency wild horse gather within the stone cabin HMA between September 1st, 2021 and on October 26th, 2021, wherein 321 head of wild horses were gathered and removed from such HMA. In January 2017, Colvin and Son and Stone Cabin Ranch filed an appeal to the U.S. Department of the Interior to partially stay the BLM Battle Mountain District Tonopah Field Office's Stone Cabin Herd Management Area Wild Horse Gather Plan. It's a mouthful. That's what she said. Uh, stating it was, uh, quote, inconsistent with BLM's previous 2011 Stone Cabin Complex decision. According to the official appeal, they argued that the 2016 gather will not uh, result in reducing the wild horse population below the AML of 364 horses in the stone cabin area as prescribed by the 2011 decision and therefore will adversely affect their grazing operations by reducing the amount of forage available for their livestock and habitat for wildlife. Administrative Judge Sylvia M. Reichel ruled BLM's 2011 uh, Stone Complex decision authorized periodic gathers and fertility treatments over the following 10 years to maintain the wild horse population at the AML. 2016 gather plan documented the continuing implementation of that decision and was not itself a separate appealable decision. Thus, their previous appeal was dismissed. So, they were still within that 10-year window of when they were supposed to reduce reduce the herd size. And <clears throat> since they had they were continuing to gather, um the judge ruled that they were within, you know, they they were within compliance, I guess. But now we're past that 10-year mark. Uh so the SCC is not the only area with an overpopulation of wild horses based on the determined AML. Nationwide is estimated that 82,883 wild horses and burros, that's what uh, there are, 82,883 wild horses and burros. However, the total AML for the U.S. is only 26,785. So roughly three times the population of what we're supposed to have. Overpopulation by state, according to the BLM, as of March 1st, 2023, is as follows. And all of these, except for Idaho, have like at least double the the capacity. So Arizona has six hundred and sixty or six hundred and sixty six hundred and seventy horses and burros with an AML of sixteen hundred and seventy six. California has seven thousand twenty with an AML of twenty two hundred. Colorado has 1,537 with the AML of 827, so not quite double in Colorado. Idaho has 651 with an AML of 617, so they're they're pretty close to the to the upper end of their you know allowable amount. Um, Montana has 205 with an AML of 120. Nevada has 49,268 horses and burros with an AML of 
12,811. So four times, uh, roughly four times the carrying capacity. Oregon has 4,573 with an AML of 2,700. Utah has 3,756 with an AML of 1,956. Wyoming has uh, 88.28 with an AML of 37.95. Uh, compared to the same data from 22, most states decreased in the number of wild horses and burrows rooming free or the population numbers were very similar. However, in two states, Nevada and Wyoming, the number of wild horses and burrows roaming, saw, roaming free saw significant increases in just a year. Nevada's year-over-year population growth was 2,698 head, and Wyoming was 4,094. So that's, uh, yeah, those are pretty big increases. Uh, this wild horse issue is, a, like, it's a touchy issue because you get a lot of, lot of horse Karens that, uh, you know, think that no horse should ever die in a million years. And, um... And we can all just munch on sugar cubes together and, and live peacefully. But man, if they're not managed, they they can wreak havoc and they and they have on, on a lot of the lot of this country. And and the way they, they graze, they clip the grass so it doesn't grow back, whereas you know, like a cow pulls pulls it up and so it, it kinda <clears throat> it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't kill the entire the entire thing where a horse clips it off and then it just doesn't grow back. So you, you have to really, really manage those things because uh, horses, horses really can decimate uh, an ecosystem if, if they're, if they're not properly managed. And, you know, the cattle do a little better job at, at kind of going and find and feed and, and, and that, they're they're a little better at it, but um these these horses are such a tough touchy su- subject, and a lot of these ranchers are just I mean they feel like they're just getting fucked constantly uh by people that have no real no real interest in in any of this out here. So uh we'll see how how that case goes and how it proceeds. But uh, I wish them luck. Hopefully, there's something. Some sort of reform comes out of it, but I won't hold my breath. Um, this one was kind of was kind of following up a little bit on on some of the dairy technology I was talking about last week, and there was a so there was a symposium at Texas A and M there in College Station, and this article talked about how, in particular, there was a there was interest from from producers in New Mexico and West Texas, where the, you're seeing kind of a boom of, of dairy farms in that part of the world. <clears throat> and a lot of it has to do with, uh, so one of the, the deal was like the monitoring technologies. Um, one in, uh, attendee was Franz Osinga from Proctor, New Mexico, who runs a 1,500-cow dairy. Came to see the anaerobic digester, which turns dairy manure into high high quality fertilizer, as well as other technologies that the vendors were featuring that that he can implement on his operation. 
For instance, he said the wide variety of sensors now available to be placed on cows are expected to save time and money. The sensors show him at the touch of a button on his phone the animal's temperature for breeding, rumination, and signs of sickness. This saves labor, antibiotics, and hormone use. These technologies allow the cow to stay in the pen and not be stressed by moving them to a sick pen. Essentially, we give them two aspirin and a bolus and they never leave the pen, uh, Osinga said. It's a lot less stressful for our cows. So, uh, like the dairy, as much shit as I talk about the dairy industry, their, their technology usage is, is pretty prolific. Um, and then as far as the, the anaerobic uh, digesters, I, I th- I'm really intrigued by this this whole technology, and I, I don't know how effective it is, but I, I know that there's uh, there's some like money and uh, that that operators can can get from the government to switch to these things, which captures the methane from your from your lagoons and turns that into to some sort of usable fuel gas i don't know whether it's methane or exactly what it is but they call it a biogas and uh and then i also like the the byproduct is uh is a fertilizer i guess um participants learned and were most intrigued by was the biogas sales value is greatly increased over general natural gas price mainly due to its trading value reducing greenhouse gas emissions okay yeah so that's right the whole cap and trade deal by selling biogas to energy companies anaerobic digesters on dairies can potentially create substantial revenue lou said the anaerobic digester and common ground in economic growth and the stewardship of land and water Anaerobic digesters harness the natural process of decomposition, he said. Greenhouse gases emitted by manure are harvested in, harvested from uh, methane-rich biogas via anaerobic digesters. It has also been shown as an effective manure management strategy to reduce pathogens and the odor of manure. The post-digestion effluent is a valuable fertilizer to support crop production as well, Lou said. The digestion process conserves total nitrogen and total phosphorus while making these nutrients more readily available for crop use. So the way they pitch it is, uh, seems like a win-win. I don't know if, uh, I don't know how much of that I would buy, but it seems like it's, it's not a bad idea to, to look into. And, um, the bigger issue is the issue of, Eastern New Mexico and and West Texas, where it's pretty dry, dry and arid, and those dairy cows take a lot of water, and you're already having a kind of a, a water crisis in that. Well, not kind of. You're you already have a water crisis in that part of the world, and yeah, you add more dairies in there, it just that adds more stress to the to the groundwater supply and like, are, are we, are we moving towards like from, you know, Dodge city, Kansas, all the way to, to death Valley, just being kind of one giant desert. Is that, is that where we're headed? I don't, I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's just, it seems like 
it seems like the, the places where dairies should be, namely California, has been overrun with California and people. So they get pushed out to, you know, Idaho and, and Nevada, Kansas, Colorado, Texas, and, you know, and places where typically are not dairy country. Like Southwest Kansas is not before the, the Californians moved in and, and built dairies there. The, Southwest Kansas was not known as dairy country. Um, it's worked for a little while, but I, I just, it seems like places where the dairy should be, they can't be anymore because there's too many people. And those same people are now bitching at the dairy industry and the cattle industry about, you know, climate change and like, but you took all of our good land, uh, whether you took it or, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's the rural version of gentrification. You know, it's like things just ain't like they used to be. And a lot of it has to do with these new people moving into where to places that used to be good agricultural land. And, um, so you have to, you, you have to develop technology to make, make use of less land and create more, more stuff. I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of the bane of agricultural existence in, uh, in the 21st century. So, um, I don't know. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to leave that topic on a big, big wide open. I don't know, but, um, we'll go, go across the ocean and, uh, towards the Mediterranean sea. We'll head over to Israel, the Holy land. And, uh, this was an interesting story I found. Um, so bulletproof vest clad volunteers try to get Israeli dairy farms functioning again. So when Israel was granted statehood by the the United Nation or recognized as an in, independent sovereign state in 1948, what had happened was they had the Zionist movement, which a bunch of the Jewish diaspora, which, you know, Israel has been conquered many, many times by just about every empire in that part of the world and seemed like particularly the Romans, though. But the Romans kicked, kicked all most of the Jews out and said, get out, and they, they spread to the world, and a lot of them ended up in Europe. You had the Holocaust, World War II, and then a lot of the Jewish community, particularly the European Jews, said, never, ever again, we need our own state. Uh, they petitioned this newfound United Nations, and one of the first things they did is they make um, the state of Israel in what was former Palestine, uh, former Ottoman Empire, you know, as deemed Palestine by the Brits who took it over from the Ottomans. And <clears throat> anyhow, what they did was essentially is what we did in the in the American West is they they took their version of the Indians, which are the Palestinians now, and they uprooted them, moved them off the land essentially shuttled him into the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and then they sent homesteaders out into these these newly uh, newly conquered lands. And because you fight to get the land, then you got to keep it. And the best way to keep it is by having people there. So they 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 built these homesteads, or what they call a, a kibbutz, as, as opposed to homestead. But it's essentially, I don't know acreage-wise, 
uh, how big these things are. Probably not very big because Israel as a whole is not very big. But uh, they 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 built these little farms or a, a kibbutz, and um, and so essentially these this is like your like your homesteader in uh, <laughs> you know in in Comanche country. You know, like we're gonna build a farm here. We're gonna raise some cattle, and we're gonna we're gonna raise some crops. And at the same time, we gotta we might have to fight off a bunch of Indians. And in this case, instead of Indians, they gotta fight off a bunch of Arabs. Um, well, when the October seventh Hamas attack happened and the massacre, um, a bunch of these kibbutzes are about ten kilometers from the Gaza border, and. Well, Hamas, when they made their their attack, they hit these kibbutzes, massacred a bunch of the workers. And oddly enough, a lot of the the workers are immigrants from Thailand. A bunch of them got shot, and the ones that got away, they're trying to get back to to Thailand, which I I don't blame them. And the the Thai government is kind of working overtime to try to get get them back. In the meanwhile, ten kilometers away, you've got a uh, about two and a half million people that probably would kill for a good paying job on one of these one of these dairy farms on a kibbutz. But uh, that's neither here nor there. I don't know. I don't know the region well enough. I don't know the the culture well enough to to see why that that wouldn't work. Uh, except for, I mean, they just kind of hate each other. And, um, anyway, so now they've got, uh, when that happened, you know, everything went on in lockdown. Um, you know, obviously with, with good reason, everybody can see why that would happen. And so a lot of these kibbutzes ran out of feed. One of them had to just turn all their, their cows out and let them fend for themselves because they had nothing left to feed them. And, uh, so now they're finally, uh, able to get some trucks into these places so they can they can go back to feeding them but like the whole time they're under heavy heavy guard um armed guard which i mean it yeah there's a war going on over there so yeah tensions are a little high but uh i wish these guys the best i mean i you know i've made my my opinions on this whole matter known pretty well on on this show. And if you've talked to me about this issue, you kind of know where I stand, but um, I, I think both, both of the sides fighting each other, the Israeli government and the, and Hamas are um, like, there's not really a good side to pick there that they're both, they both, uh, they both kind of suck. Uh, but that being said, these kibbutz people, they're just trying to, just trying to pump out some milk, you know, make a living and uh yeah the the Thai farmer you know or the Thai farm you know dairy worker he's just some poor asian dude trying to make a little bit of money uh, i'm guessing he don't have he don't care two shits one way or the other about you know jewish islam palestine israel like i just just working man and uh yeah so so it's it's a sad deal and uh but it's good to see them try to rebuild from from that, and they're they're taking volunteers from farms in other parts of Israel. And uh, I saw a story about 
a bunch of a bunch of cowboys from America going over, but they were like going to work in the West Bank, which is kind of disputed territory. And um, I don't know. It, it's just that whole that whole region's a, a mess. And uh, kudos to these people that just trying to get back on track and milk some cows. So good luck to them. Um, I hope it ends well. It's a sad, sad deal. Um, let's see what else. I guess the last. Yeah, the last. Last one I got here is kind of kind of touches on uh, what I was, I was talking about earlier in the, in the show. Um, same goes all goes right along the same lines uh with the previous story about the the Israeli um dairy farm but <laughs> we're going to go to South America now and uh Panama Canal restriction restrictions I don't know why I can't speak today but um Panama Canal restrictions to stretch into 2024 as low water levels persist Panama Canal announced another set of restrictions to reduce transit capacity as a result of continued low water level at Gatun Lake. And that's... Uh, pull that up on a map. Um, well, uh, dun, 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 dun. Google Earth. pull up the Panama Canal and, and see see where this lake is that's causing all these problems. Because, uh, as I'll go into here in a minute, it really is a, a major problem. Um, okay. Panama Canal. All right, so you have this this long channel that uh you know cuts the, the isthmus of Panama, connects the <laughs> was that the Caribbean or is that the Gulf? I guess I guess essentially it'd be the Caribbean Sea. Connects that with the Pacific Ocean and where is uh there's the canal so where's this lake like titicaca or whatever it is that must be it right there no it's not well, that was uh, a non-productive exercise. Um, okay, anyways, so Gatun Lake, I guess we could look that up. Gatun Lake. So this is an artificial lake oh, up there. Okay. Uh, 
And that's what supplies the water to the Panama Canal. Um, yeah, so right there is Gatun Lake, and right there is the, the canal. Gatun is a freshwater artificial lake to the south of Cologne, Panama. 26 meters above sea level, it forms a major part of the Panama Canal, carrying ships 33 kilometers of their trans uh, their transit across the Isthmus of Panama. Okay. Now that we know what that's all about, uh, the number of vessels allowed to move through the canal each day was lowered from 32 to 25 on November 3rd. Daily ship crossings will further decrease every month until next February when the limit reaches 18. The restrictions mark a significant escalation from earlier this summer, where June averaged 33 vessels per day with a high of 49 vessels that month, according to the canal's operations summary. Water levels at Gatun Lake, which uh, feeds the canal, have reached uh, unprecedented levels for this time of year, according to the Panama Canal Authority. Rainfall in October was the lowest on record since 1950, and the country is set to enter a seasonal dry period. Neato, that's going to be fun. Since the shipping canal began to pose draft restrictions in July, shippers have had to look for alternative routes and leverage freight diversions to, to move their cargo. Trade between China, Japan, and South Korea and certain regions of the U.S. continue to be impacted as 46% of container movement from northeastern Asia to the U.S. is facilitated by the canal. The canal is also an important gateway for the agriculture industry. And restrictions come as the grain export season begins in earnest. The U.S. exported over 26% of soybeans and 17% of corn through the Panama Canal in 2022, primarily to markets in Asia, according to Rabobank. China has looked to import more grains from countries, including the U.S., to offset a harvest headwinds from, uh, from severe weather. China imports a lot of agricultural products and not just food, but um, like fertilizer and all, all the stuff that like China's pretty resource poor um, comparatively to, to a lot of countries. So um, this is gonna, this is gonna hurt them or it's going to cause more, more grain to be trucked from the Midwest to the West coast to get on barges there as opposed to going through the Panama Canal. Uh, you know, so a lot of times you'd get grain from the Midwest, floats down the the Mississippi, down to New Orleans, and then then through the, the Gulf, and then Panama Canal to the Pacific. Uh, capacity from Asia to the U.S. has decreased about 2 to 10% per week. So as much as 10% per Per week as carriers adjust to the weight restrictions with lighter containers taking priority said ch said the ch robinson vp of global ocean services matthew burgess new restrictions are still being analyzed and it could cause a delay of up to two to three days for vessels and containers two to three days they might have to wait but on the bright side the bars and the whores around the Panama Canal zone 
are going to profit greatly because that's like two to three extra days that all those sailors get to spin on shore and whore around while they're waiting to go through. So I don't know exactly how all that works, but I bet, I bet you there's a, but there's an uptick in the price of puss in Panama here in the next, uh, well, February is supposed to go down to its lowest levels, and then we'll see from there. But uh, reduced capacity in the canal could push agricultural shippers, agriculture shippers to the Suez Canal, according to the USDA's grain transportation report. However, that could bring its own set of risks with the prospect of a widened complex, conflict in the Middle East. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, um, Suez Canal is in Egypt, which borders Israel and is, along with the Panama Canal, one of one of the most trafficked or heavily trafficked areas in the world. Uh, with the Suez Canal, like forty percent of global shipments moving through there and yeah so you got the suez canal you have the sinai peninsula and then right over here you got gaza and israel so it's um all of these these little things worldwide can have a huge impact on what goes on in uh in the good old us of a here's here's the suez canal over here Gaza Strip is right over here, Sinai Peninsula. So Egypt, Egypt, Israel, Gaza, Suez Canal. <clears throat> Should that whole region, because as of right now, it's just between Gaza and Israel for the most part, but you have Lebanon up here, kind of fucking around with Hezbollah. Syria, there's some fuckery going on. I don't know what's going to happen with Jordan. Is Egypt going to finally say fuck it? We're 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 not uh, we're not holding back anymore. Saudi's going to get involved down here. Uh, is Kuwait? Is Iran over here going to get involved? Who knows? It's all uh, it's all a big unstable powder keg. Um, in the meantime, over in Panama, low water levels and uh, got to going to have to buy a couple extra whores while you're waiting to get through. And uh, some would say maybe that's not such a bad thing. Others would say, fuck your whores. That is a bad thing. And uh, I'm here to say, I don't know. Um I don't know what the answer is. I don't, I don't know. I'm just, it's stuff to, to keep an eye on. And I think long story short, things are going to get more expensive before they get cheaper. Going out on a limb here. But anyways, that's all I got for you, I think. Uh, let me check my tabs. I, I think that's that's all I've got. I got a... I gotta give Jen Hill a shout out on uh, the the cattle on feed number. She sent me that article a couple of weeks ago, and I just haven't haven't mentioned it until today. So, anyways, uh, shout out to her for for.
for that little heads up. And um, yeah, this has been the friggin' Farm and Ranch Report for Monday, November 13th, 2023. Hope you all have a good week and move your ass. We're burning daylight. Up in the morning, beneath the stars so bright. Pull your hat down, make sure your cinch is tight. Horse is kinda snuffy, cold chill up your spine. It'll get your ass moving, sun will burn Till the job's done right